If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor, and I'm joined today by our features editor, Rob Attar. Hello. Coming up in this special World War II podcast. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note, stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received. Neville Chamberlain and other notables assist us in our history of the start of the Second World War. In some ways there's a sense of relief in September 1939 that at last that moment has come. And that was Dr Dan Todman who will be explaining how the outbreak of the war shaped life in Britain. Now, this twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later. Before we get going with the podcast, we have an exciting announcement. Our much-heralded and perhaps previously prematurely publicised website is now finally live. You can find it at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. And if you're listening to the podcast, which clearly you are, you'll find much of interest on it. There's our catalogue of podcasts going back to June 2007, plus features from the magazine, bespoke blogs from the likes of Dan Snow, Julian Humphreys, Bethany Hughes and other guest contributors. We've also finally been able to put up an index facility for the magazine, so if you want to search your magazine content over the last few years, you can now do that online. Also, on Fridays, we've got a weekly quiz and TV and radio listening preview, which you can be reminded of by signing up to our newsletter. Finally, there's a forum, so you can tell us exactly what you think of the magazine, the podcast, the website, books you've read, TV you've seen, radio you've listened to, history in general, and indeed anything else that takes your fancy. Check it out at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. So, now it's September 2009, which is the 70th anniversary of the start of the Second World War. We commemorate that event in the magazine with a special 30-page section charting the road to war and considering several aspects of the start of the conflict. Now, in a slight diversion from normal podcast service, our first piece is not an interview of a historian, but instead an edited extract from two new BBC audiobooks called BBC War Reports. I'd very much appreciate hearing from you, either direct by email to davemusgrove at bbcmagazines.com or on our forum, about whether you'd like me to try and organise more of this sort of thing or just stick to the historian interviews. Anyway, here we go, a short introduction to the start of the war and what happened on the home front. After its defeat in the First World War, Germany was forbidden to have an air force, tanks or submarines. A strict limit was imposed on the size of its army. 
When he came to power in 1933, Adolf Hitler swept aside these military restrictions. He also violated the territorial restrictions that had been imposed. In March 1936, he sent troops into that part of Germany west of the Rhine, which the League of Nations, created in 1919 to keep the peace and settle disputes, had decreed that no troops of any country should occupy. In March 1938, he engulfed Austria on the pretext of restoring order. Then he took a bite out of Czechoslovakia. The weakness of the League of Nations and uncertainty about what to do in the face of aggression led to the now infamous act of appeasement at Munich in September 1938. The British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, returned from having signed that agreement, speaking of peace in our time. Six months later, Hitler devoured the rest of Czechoslovakia. It was clear that the state of Poland, recreated after the 1914-18 conflict, would be Germany's next victim. Hitler was demanding the reunification of the port of Danzig with the Reich. In an attempt to save the Poles, Great Britain and France promised to come to their aid if they were attacked. On September 1st, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. On Sunday, September 3rd, Chamberlain spoke to the British people. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. The British government anticipated an immediate blitzkrieg, even invasion. Within eight minutes of Chamberlain's declaration, the air raid sirens began to wail, and it seemed that the worst had happened. But it was a false alarm. Britain carried on with its preparations. Closing of places of entertainment. All cinemas, theatres and other places of entertainment are to be closed immediately until further notice. The evacuation of British children is going on smoothly and efficiently. The Ministry of Health says that great progress has been made with the first part of the government's arrangements. Railways, the road transport organisations, the local authorities and teachers the voluntary workers, and not least, the householders in the reception areas, are all playing their parts splendidly. We're on number 12 platform at Waterloo Station, one of the ten big metropolitan stations that are engaged today on the evacuation of London's school children. We're on number 12 platform, the train's in, and the children are just arriving, coming along in their school groups, with a banner in front saying what school they are. This lot, St John's School, Walworth, which is south of the river, and then they follow behind. The tiny tots in front, leading up to the bigger ones, the 12, 13-year-olds behind, and here comes a high school, more like 14, 15 and 16. They're being evacuated too. 
a million and a half people, the vast majority of them children, were evacuated from the danger zones in London and the other big cities. For many, evacuation brought great unhappiness. By January 1940, 900,000 had gone home again. Some 14,000 children were sent to safety in America and the Dominions. Princess Elizabeth, aged 14, spoke to them as well as to the children of Britain when she made her first broadcast on Children's Hour. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister Margaret Rose and I feel so much for you, as we know from experience what it means to be away from those we love most of all. To you living in new surroundings, we send a message of true sympathy. And at the same time, we would like to thank the kind people who have welcomed you to their homes in the country. Evacuation overseas came to a tragic end when the liner city of Benares was torpedoed in September 1940. Seventy-three children lost their lives. The British Expeditionary Force, which sailed for France in September 1939, expected to go straight into battle. Instead, it found itself kicking its heels in one of the worst winters on record. The seven months of what became known as the Phony War had begun. Richard Dimbleby, the BBC's first war correspondent who accompanied the BEF, was able to provide colour, but not much in the way of content. We're standing in the pouring rain at the side of a French road, a road squelching with mud and lined right away over the plain to the far skyline with the inevitable double row of poplars. It's a grey, cold, dismal day. A few lorries only are splashing by to and from the forward areas. But coming down the road towards us is a battalion that I know to be of a famous Irish regiment. They're marching in threes, and in their full battle dress and kit, they blend with the dripping green grass of the roadside and the brown of the haystack. they passed us on that road, with their brown capes glistening and their tin hats perched on their heads. I thought how similar this must be to pictures of the last war. The road, the trees, the rain, and the everlasting beat of feet. At home on Armistice Day, regularly observed since the end of the First World War, the Queen spoke to the women of the Empire. War has at all times called for the fortitude of women. Even in other days, when it was an affair of the fighting forces only, wives and mothers at home suffered constant anxiety for their dear ones, and too often the misery of bereavement. Their lot was all the harder because they felt that they could do so little beyond heartening through their own courage and devotion, the men at the front. Now this is all changed, for we, no less than men, have real and vital work to do. The fear of gas attack led the government to issue some 40 million gas masks and to urge citizens to carry them everywhere. What we're going on with this morning is the use of the respirator and a gas attack. 
Now, the first thing you would do is you'd hold your breath. The reason being, if you didn't hold your breath, you'd breathe in, uh, breathe in the poison gas and you'd be gassed. Carrying gas masks was a habit that rapidly declined. It ended completely in 1942, when the government ceased its campaign, principally because of the need to save rubber. What action there was was happening at sea. The passenger liner Athenia was torpedoed in the Irish Sea with the loss of 128 lives. The aircraft carrier Courageous was sunk by a U-boat in the Bristol Channel, and another put paid to the battleship Royal Oak at Scupper Flow. But the Royal Navy produced the first good news of the war when the German pocket battleship Graf Spee, which in two months had sunk nine merchantmen in the South Atlantic, was so damaged that its captain scuttled her off the coast of Uruguay. Winston Churchill, as First Lord of the Admiralty, made the announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, the news which has come from Montevideo has been received with thankfulness in our island and with unconcealed satisfaction throughout the greater part of the world. The pocket battleship, Graf Spee, which has been for many weeks preying upon the trade of the South Atlantic, has met her doom. And throughout a vast expanse of water, the peaceful shipping of all nations may, for a spell at least, enjoy the freedom of the seas. When the crews of the triumphant British warships marched through London, they received a hero's welcome. With the spring of 1940, the phony war ended abruptly. It was about dawn this morning that the first reports came in saying that German troops were crossing the frontier into Denmark. At the same time, attacks were being delivered from the sea on a number of Norway's biggest ports. The Oslo radio is still working and has announced that German troops have disembarked at Egersund on the south coast of Norway and that Christian Sand has been attacked and also bombed. Denmark was occupied in a single day. Norway, which saw the first offensive airborne operation of the war and the first amphibious landing, was taken, but not without heavy German losses at sea inflicted by the Royal Navy. British and French troops came to Norway's aid, but after some initial success were driven out. Over-optimistic reports in Britain had led the nation to expect a different outcome. Chamberlain no longer had popular support, and, as the American commentator Ed Murrow reported, he no longer had the confidence of Parliament. This is London. I spent today in the House of Commons. The debate was opened by Herbert Morrison, one of the ablest members of the Labour Party. He doubted that the government was taking the war seriously. Mr Morrison said that the Labour Party had decided to divide the House. In other words, call for a vote. Mr Chamberlain, white with anger, intervened in the debate and accepted the challenge. In fact, he welcomed it. He fairly spat the words. He said that he had friends in the House, and he appealed to them to support him. When he had finished, Mr David Lloyd George rose and placed his notes upon the dispatch box, and members surged into the room through both doors as though the little, square, grey-shouldered, white-haired Welshman were a magnet to draw them back to their seats. He swept the house with his arm and said, If there is a man here who is satisfied with our production of planes, of guns, of tanks, or the training of troops, let him stand on his feet. No one stood. Chamberlain had no option but to stand down. I sought an audience of the King this evening, 
and tendered to him my resignation, which his majesty has been pleased to accept. His majesty has now entrusted to my friend and colleague, Mr. Winston Churchill, the task of forming a new administration on a national basis. And in this task, I have no doubt he will be successful. On the very day that Churchill took office, the invasion of Holland, Belgium and Luxembourg began. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is a short news bulletin. The German army invaded Holland and Belgium early this morning by land and by landings from parachutes. The armies of the Low Countries are resisting. An appeal for help has been made to the Allied governments and Brussels says that Allied troops are moving to their support. German paratroops seized vital Dutch bridges and airfields. The major Belgian fort of Eben Emile fell to glider troops and the Belgian army retreated. Allied Commander-in-Chief Gamelin ordered mobile units of the French Army and the British Expeditionary Force to the Belgians' assistance. BBC correspondent Bernard Stubbs watched the BEF advance. Here, standing on the Franco-Belgian frontier, we're watching long columns of British troops and transports and supplies and guns coming through from France into Belgium. Just on this frontier, there's a little village which is presumably half French and half Belgian since it stretches on both sides. And almost the entire village has turned out and seems to be standing in the street all day long watching these transports coming up. The welcome given by the Belgian people is really tremendous. But the enthusiasm of the people in this part of Belgium makes a sharp contrast with the sufferings of the refugees from such places as Liège. We saw several lorry loads of these unhappy people, and at one point on another road, we met a straggling little party of Belgians, old men and women and children, some of them with rolled blankets tied over their shoulders, their few pathetic belongings strapped on their back or carried in cheap suitcases in their hands. For a time, as Charles Gardner reported, the Allies held up the German occupation north of Antwerp. This roughly was the position when the British squadron was ordered to the attack. A French force was falling back to the lines of defence northeast of Antwerp, and they were engaged in a race with an advanced German motorised column which was rushing round to try and cut them off. It seemed possible that the Germans might manage it, and so the order went out, hold up that German column. The Germans have been bombing again today, uh, mainly roads and aerodromes and refugees, and in one village they hit a hospital, killing and injuring a number of people. Their latest trick one which goes on top of bombing and shooting the ever-increasing stream of refugees, is to machine-gun the cattle in the French fields, and lots of these have been seen lying about dead. Then the panzers smashed through the Ardennes, considered certainly by the French commanders to be untankable, and across the Meuse River, supported by dive bombers. The static defences of the vaunted Maginot Line were rendered futile. The Germans drove deep into France. On May the 14th, the Netherlands gave in, Having disposed of the French Ninth Army by the following day, the German armour drove northwards towards the coast, cutting off the Allies' retreat. Churchill made his first broadcast as Prime Minister on May the 19th. Having received His Majesty's commission, I have formed an administration of men and women of every party and of almost every point of view. We have differed and quarrelled in the past, but now one bond unites us all to wage war until victory is won, 
and never to surrender ourselves to servitude and shame, whatever the cost and the agony may be. This is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister. I am speaking to you in the Cabinet Room. I didn't really think much about the war until uh, Chamberlain said that Hitler had not replied to our ultimatum, so consequently we were at war with Germany. And I felt a terrible foreboding because I kept worrying will mum and dad be killed. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war... It was a Sunday morning and we were at home and we waited to hear the announcement that war was declared on the wireless. Mr Chamberlain came on and said that we were now at war with the Germans. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war. And Dad and I walked up the road to see if anything was happening and we didn't see any terrific happenings so we went back and my sister came downstairs she was about 11 with her gas mask and her earplugs in and she obviously thought that she had to stay like that till the end of the war carry your gas mask with you always all cinemas theaters and other places of entertainment are to be closed immediately until further notice that is the end of these announcements I actually believed that there would be people on horseback galloping down the streets and rescuing people and all sorts of nonsense. Then we had the false war where there were people going around being very authoritarian and shouting about closing blackouts. There was a sort of the issue of gas masks and everybody walked around with them. Each road had their own shelters delivered. They were dumped in the back garden. Nuts and bolts were in a bag with a spanner with instructions. What happened was that you dug a hole in your garden four or six feet deep and you stuck this thing in there and then uh, you bolted it together and then you covered the top with earth. That wasn't enough for many of the people down the road. Being very English, they decided to turf the top and others would grow flowers. But they were all very idiosyncratic. They were painted and some of them polished the handles. It was just incredible. These things were very territorial and you would no more think of going down anybody else's shelter than you would of going in anybody else's house. Remember the very first air raid and like many thousands of other people, we ended up under the stairs with the insurance policy, thinking that was the very safest place to be. That was the first time that I knew that there was a war on, a real war on. I grew up from being a boy to a young man, knowing that I wasn't indestructible. The excitement was building. It was almost like an overture to a Wagnerian opera. The adrenaline was running. I stand at the head of a government representing all parties in the state, all creeds, all classes, every recognisable section of opinion. We are ranged beneath the crown of our ancient monarchy. We are supported by a free parliament and a free press. But there is one bond which unites us all and sustains us in the public regard, namely, 
and is increasingly becoming known, that we are prepared to proceed to all extremities, to endure them and to enforce them. That is our bond of union in His Majesty's government tonight. The air raid sirens went. We went to the shelter. We were a typical terraced house with the Anderson shelter at the bottom of a 30-yard garden. And the next door shelter would be 10 yards to the left and the other side would be 10 yards to the right. Now, the old lady on our right refused to go down the shelter. She was almost blind and she was old and she said if she was going to die, she was going to die in her own house, in her own bed. She just simply refused to use the shelter. On the other side, there's a family, our neighbours and friends. Now, this particular night, there was a number of air raids and four landmines straddled the road, completely demolishing the whole of the road. Now, I distinctly remember being in the shelter, hearing a rush of wind, followed by this noise that was the most deafening, frightening noise I'd ever heard in my life, followed by a sensation of the whole of your body being compressed in. The air was pushed out, and this hot, sticky feeling in there. My father had been on the back wall outside of the house, and the whole wall had collapsed on him, and that was what saved his life. The shelter itself had crumpled and bent, but basically had withstood the blast. And we came out of the shelter and there was no street left. It was demolished. The next door shelter with a family in appeared to be okay. It stood. And the other side, the house where the old lady lived, that had been completely demolished and there were some fires going on there. My father rushed to the next door, the family, and found them all to be dead. The blast had killed the whole family down there. We walked down the road and we could see the utter desolation. The whole of the road was just completely destroyed. And at the bottom of the road, there was a bridge. As we were going across, bombs were dropping and the incendiary bombs were peppering the bridge. The whole thing was like a fireworks display. It was orange. You could see aircraft in the sky. You could see barrage balloons up. You could see searchlights. It was almost a sonne lumiere of death. I'm standing on top of a very tall building from where I can see practically the whole of London spread round me. And if this weren't so appalling, I think it would be one of the most wonderful sights I've ever seen. The whole of the skyline to the south is lit up with a ruddy glow, almost like a sunrise or a sunset, with white fleecy clouds and a bright orange light behind. But one knows quite well that it is neither of those, because to the right, to the southeast, there are leaping flames which silhouette very plainly the spires of a small church. And I think the most beautiful sight of all, apart from the tragedy of it, are the towers and the suspension bridge of the tower bridge, which stand out very clearly against the light. There's another fire more to the east, 
which is leaping up in the flames are leaping up in the air now. St. Paul, the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral is silhouetted blackly against it, and one or two of the smaller city churches to the east of that. Then there's a space of comparative darkness, except for the reflection from the sky, and we come to another red patch. Further east this time, and I should say some four or five miles away from us, the smoke is going up very slowly, and it's just illuminated faintly. I started nursing uh, in Bolton, and uh, f- from there I went to the Royal London Hospital. Before the German raids took place with the high explosive bombs, they would come over and drop their incendiary bombs and put places on fire and mark their targets. It was absolutely essential that you acted as quickly as possible to put the fires out. And, uh, and that's what we, you know, we were taught how to use stirrup pumps and deal with those sort of emergencies. And uh, we often had to carry on nursing wearing tin hats. Um, there was almost a kind of cycle with these raids. At the height of the bombing, first of all, the air raid siren used to go, so we were aware of that. And then we used to hear the planes, and we had one of these huge anti-aircraft guns right near the hospital, which, you know, more or less made the place rock. But, I mean, it, it had got to be there, and because you could see the searchlights were always there, crossing and crossing and picking out the planes. And we were accustomed to seeing the Spitfires going out, and that was a relief. And the, the night that we were hit, there were 14, I think, hospitals hit that night. We weren't the only one, but Thomas's guys. We had, we had all the equipment ready, and the, the wards were, were made ready, and uh, our training had taught us what, uh, you know, what to expect. And we had um, rooms ready for the moribund patients and so on. And um, the oxygen was laid on tap, of course. And it was a case of, of well, a lot of people with burns in particular from these incendiary bombs. Extensive burns. It was terrible to see them. I think that was the most painful part of seeing youngsters. I mean, a lot of the children had been evacuated, but I can remember various teenage boys and girls being brought in with these terrible burns. They were so brave. They were under such pressure. They were on the front line of this war, as they were in a lot of the other cities. I can remember one boy in particular, I think he was about 17... And his name was Jimmy, and he was oh, he was burnt from head to foot. And I can remember we got him onto the bed, and I, I was dealing with his um, burns and strip dressing, so you're only exposed a little bit at a time. And all he could say was, "Oh, give me a tizer." It's almost like the Day of Judgment, as pictured in some of the old books. And right out on the horizon, now to the south, there are two little twinkling red dots. I'd say those two were fires which had been started during the late afternoon raid. But they're only twinkling fitfully, and it's difficult from here to assess them at anything like their true magnitude. The sky is lit up all right, I suppose, for... 
to a thousand feet for this red glow, and it doesn't show any signs of diminishing. In fact, I should say now that the flames are leaping even higher, and of course it's not helped by the fact that there's a strong breeze blowing. One very notable thing is the flights of birds which keep on wheeling over our heads. Whether they were disturbed earlier in the day by the noise of the planes or the bombs, I don't know. But they're restless and there's no homing place for them. Well, it's from the shelters that you're going to hear first. And you're down on the platform. Right, right at the end of the very long platforms here. Right at the end of the very long platform. And the train just come in, a train on its way up towards Cockfosters. They've just had it dropped in. And the platforms themselves absolutely crowded as though it was a cup final. But it isn't a cup final because these people are taking shelter. And I must say on the whole, they look pretty well satisfied about it. They've got the white line painted along the platform to keep them back from the passengers who have to board these trains because the service is maintained pretty regularly in spite of the tremendous number of shelters that the LPTB has to house every night now. They've got about eight feet of platform to sit down on, and when they sit there, they've got these great garish advertisements for beer and all sorts of different. The train just going out now. You have been listening to extracts from the BBC War Reports, The Second World War on Air, and from The Home Front, both published by BBC Audiobooks. The full versions of these audiobooks are available to purchase as digital downloads, to listen to on your computer or MP3 player. They are both available from www.bbcaudiozone.com and other digital audio retailers. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Those were extracts from the new BBC War Report's audiobook. Now, moving on, it's time for an interview with Dr Dan Todman. Dan is a historian at Queen Mary, University of London, who's currently working on a new history of the Second World War. In our September issue, he's written a feature about Britain's readiness for war in 1939. I caught up with him recently to get the lowdown on the first few months of the conflict and the difficulties the government had in getting Britain onto a war footing. When did the British government start preparing for war in earnest? Well, I think when we, uh, when we look at the British government's preparation for war, we need to bear a couple of things in mind. And the first is that as a result of its experiences in the First World War, that generation of leaders that's starting to think about a Second World War in the second half of the 1930s really believes that it needs to prepare, what we might say holistically, it needs to prepare in depth for any war to come. So getting ready for war isn't just about building up an army that can't be sustained. It's about building up industrial capacity. It's also about making sure that you maintain social consent on the home front. They don't believe you can fight a total war unless the whole population is behind you. So I think bearing that in mind, that's how we have to see how they prepare. And they're also preparing for a war that they're not sure is going to come. And the great risk for Britain as it emerges from uh, the Depression is that if it spends too much on preparing for war, it won't be able to maintain that social consent on the home front. It won't be able to give people the benefits of peace. So its first efforts at rearmament really come from 1935. But it's not until the much later 1930s that it starts to rearm in earnest, particularly from 1937 when it makes a commitment to air defence. But there's a really major push after the Munich crisis in 1938. In fact, in some ways, I think we could see Britain's Second World War stretching from 1938 to 1945. In a whole set of ways, that crisis starts to create a pattern of thought, which is almost as if war has already begun. And that sense of crisis is sustained through to the autumn of 1939. So how ready for war would you say Britain was when it did break out in September 1939? I'd say that Britain was emotionally pretty ready for war, actually. There is widespread agreement on the home front from both sides, politically, that Germany needs to be opposed. Opposed from the left, ideologically, because Britain's Labour and trade union leaders have seen what happens to the left in Germany, in fascist countries. They see this as uh, an ideological struggle. And on the right, because Hitler has thumbed his nose at British power and what you might call little Englanders, patriotic Britons, have had enough. So there's the grounds for both sides there to come together. And Really, people accept the outbreak of war, I think, with resignation, but not with rejection. It's maybe, you know, it's a very sharp distinction is often drawn between the supposed enthusiasm of August 1914 and the supposed dull resignation of 1939. I'm not actually quite sure how true that is for two directions. Firstly, because a lot of more modern research is suggesting much more complex reactions in 1914, but also because I think in some ways there's a sense of relief in September 1939 that at last that moment has come. The building since the previous year, and uh, at least now it's going to be resolved. Militarily, and in terms of civil defence at home, Britain was much better prepared than it had been the year before, I think. It's very hard to see how Britain could have fought in 1938, and the, the Munich crisis then causes a big shock on the home front when people realise how unprepared the country is. But by the autumn of 1939, Britain is better than it had been previously, but not yet ready to launch any major military action on the continent, or, I think, to resist a bolt from the blue attack 
at home. I mean, had the Germans been able to launch some sort of enormous air attack, which was, of course, the big fear, the Germans weren't able to do that, didn't have the capability. But had they been able to do that, I think Britain probably would have been in trouble. Lots of people didn't know where their nearest air aid shelter was, couldn't recognise the sirens, couldn't tell the difference between the all-clear and uh, the alert signal. Lots of particularly poor areas didn't have good shelter provision, and the evacuation scheme had been largely ineffective. The big thing that's always forgotten about evacuation is it doesn't work. Most children aren't evacuated from urban centres. There would have been tremendous suffering had there been heavy bombing by mid-September 1939. So unprepared in lots of ways and really needing time to prepare. I think the authorities were aware of that. The government's aware of that. But they have to try to recover their position with two provisos. The first is that they have to be sure to maintain agreement on the home front. And that's very difficult for the Chamberlain government because of the animosity that built up as a result of Britain's experiences in the 1930s, and particularly the personal animosity that had built up on the left towards Chamberlain. Chamberlain, not a man to suffer fools badly, and he thought that quite a lot of the Labour front bench were fools, and he let them know it. And I think that's quite an obstacle to any political collaboration at that point. But also an international restriction or action, which is that in order to build up its armed forces, Britain is dependent on purchasing from America. And it has a limited stock of dollar reserves. And it's very conscious that if those dollar reserves are used up too quickly, then they're gone. And that really dominates British preparations for war before September 1939. It continues to dominate them after war has broken out. And that's a major problem. How do you generate military power in a race that might might be a marathon or might be a sprint. When do you make that decisive spurt, as the Chartered Exchequer, as John Simon puts it? When the war broke out, how would you rate the government's response in the opening months of the conflict? Well, I think it did better than many people now think, given the circumstances. Its belief that it could fight a limited war for total aims is misplaced. The government believes that the way to end this war is to depose Hitler. And it thinks that that can be done without a complete commitment of British wealth, of British power, of British personnel. And... The problem is it's not a limited aim, getting rid of the head of a totalitarian dictatorship. It's a total aim. The only way to do it is to smash that dictatorship. So I think that, in a way, they misjudge how the war is going to be fought. But they're not alone in doing that. I mean, that's a, a widespread misperception amongst the whole of the population. And the limits on their freedom of action are not just conceptual. It's not just that Chamberlain and the members of his cabinet want to continue with business as usual because they're somehow bad people or because they believe that that business must always come before national survival. Instead, it's really more that they're trapped in a situation where they can't gain compliance from the whole of the population, either you know, on one side because there's a great belief in voluntarism, both from the left and from the right. It's a sort of strange situation in which you have both the Daily Express complaining about rationing. Beaver Brook launches a campaign against rationing in 1939, and the left also complaining about excessive compulsion. So really, the Chamberlain government is trapped in a a circumstance where it can't generate the national will that's necessary to fight a more total war, even as it becomes more and more convinced as it gets into the spring of 1940 that that's what it has to do. And really, it's not until the circumstances change, until the fall of France and this great threat to Britain that emotionally mobilizes the population, that any government can start to do that. And it has to be said that even when the Churchill government comes in in 1940, it takes a far more hesitant approach 
to the mobilization of domestic efforts than is often assumed. You know, May to June 1940 is not as great and decisive a shift as we sometimes think in terms of things like uh, rationing and the conscription of women. Those are events that take place much later in the war, and they're very concerned, the Churchill Coalition, to stay behind the demand curve. Really, they're operating within that same set of limits as their predecessors, but they're doing so in a dramatically changed international circumstance. And what would you say the mood was of the home front at the start of the war? Well, I think the first thing is actually you need a huge amount more research on that. Something that historians actually have not done a very good job of is writing the history of the first days of September 1939 in a way that really digs back beyond the mythology of Chamberlain's speech. Everybody can conjure up that speech in their minds. But what reactions to it were like, I think, is something that's much more difficult to get back to. And may depend to a large degree on where you look in the country. You know, I think in cities generally tend to generate bigger reactions because there's more people in them. So either panic at the fear of air raids or celebration, which is supposedly what you see in 1914, not in 1939. But I think you can see occasions where in smaller cities there are recruiting rallies and things like that at the outbreak of war, popularly attended recruiting rallies. Reactions in cities might be very different from looking at the countryside where there's less immediate danger of aerial attack and a a different set of responses, I think. So the cop-out answer, my answer so that would be, I think, that's something that we need to study more. Do we know what kind of expectations British people had of the war? Expectations of what the war, the coming war, would be like are very much shaped by the popular experience of the First World War. Remember that half the eligible adult male population sees service in that First World War. So there's still an awful lot of veterans around 20-some years later. London had also been bombed, and that idea of a, an aerial attack that will combine the worst aspect of bombardment from the Western Front with a sudden and unexpected blow from the sky is something which does, I think, dominate expectations, at least for the first few days. But then it becomes increasingly obvious that that's not going to happen. And I think then there's quite a prolonged period of confusion because the government in order to try to protect people from that expected onslaught has introduced a whole set of restrictions. Restrictions really on all the things that were most important to consumers in the 1930s. Cinema, sports, football pools and there's a a resentment I think of those liberties being taken away without there being the balancing acts of German action that would apparently make them necessary. Something that you just referred to actually partly, in what ways do you think Britain's response to the outbreak of the Second World War was shaped by the experiences of the First World War? Well, I think a common response for that would be to say that the British were much less enthusiastic about war in 1939 than they'd been in 1914. And you could look back to the surge of popular pacifism that there is during the first half of the 1930s and say that that first experience of of mass mobilisation and mass bereavement was something that had shifted British attitudes towards war. It wasn't easy to be enthusiastic about war in the same way that it had been possible in the first decade of the 20th century. But I don't think that the experience of the First World War had led Britons as a nation to give up on the idea of the use of armed force to defend the nation. And for an awful lot of people, both within government and for the man on the street, that's what war in 1939 is about. So I don't think there's an outright connection between the horror of the First World War and people's feelings about whether Britain ought to fight a Second World War, there are, I think, quite distinct influences on behaviour and choices in terms of things like 
what arm do men want to serve in if they have to join the forces? It seems pretty clear that nobody's too eager to be sent into the infantry because pretty much everybody in Britain has an uncle or a father who saw service with the infantry in the First World War and says, look, whatever you do, on no account end up in a muddy trench. It's much better to do something else. And that's part of the reason that things like the RAF and the Navy recruit a far larger number of volunteers than the Army ever does during the Second World War. Finally... Have our perceptions of the start of the Second World War been clouded by what happened later on in the conflict? Absolutely. It's tremendously hard for all British historians to look back beyond the smokescreen that's cast by the legend of 1940. And I think that sits heavily on, not just on our popular imagination, but also actually on the scholarship, that it makes it very hard to recover that period. Bearing in mind, it's really quite a long period of the Second World War, nine months between its outbreak and Dunkirk, the advent of the Churchill Coalition and uh, that sort of decisive moment. Yet it's curiously understudied because we all want to rush on and get on to the exciting bit. And remember that that later government derives an awful lot of its legitimacy from contrasts that are drawn with what had gone before. And I think the division between a weak, uninterventionist, indecisive Chamberlain government and a decisive interventionist, good Churchill government, is one that can be overdrawn. I mean, Churchill, of course, is in that first government as first Lord of the Admiralty, and he's one of the people who's saying that he doesn't think the rationing ought to be brought in. You know, rationing the great success story of domestic mobilisation for Britain in the Second World War. But he's an opponent of it. He doesn't think it's necessary. So I think we have to be careful about uh, this sort of idea of 1940 good, 1939 bad interpretation. That was Dr. Dan Todman. Now there's much more World War II coverage in the September issue of the magazine, on sale in all good news agents in the UK right now. Even better, you can save money and ensure you never miss an issue by subscribing. We have great subscription deals available whether you're in the UK or overseas. Unsurprisingly, you'll find the details on the website. That's it. Thanks as ever for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Our next podcast, which will be available in a couple of weeks features Dan Snow on the Battle of Quebec and Tracy Borman on the jealousy of Queen Elizabeth I. Worth downloading, I hope, and don't forget to look out for our new website, www.bbchistorymagazine.com. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.